Hey friends, welcome back to The Catwalk. My name is Clark Cowden. I'm your host for this podcast, and I want to thank you for joining with me again for this week's message. Today we are looking at three different questions that people asked about God. People have a lot of questions about God, and whenever we try to understand what God is like, we always go to the Bible to see what God has revealed to us about him. People want to know what God is like, how he acts in relationship to our world, and what can we expect and how can we think about him since we've never seen him before. So I invite you to sit back and relax and reflect on this message on questions about God. Today, I would like to talk with you about three questions that people asked about God. The first question is this, does God love everybody? About two months ago, there was a pastor in Texas who sent out a tweet that said, you should not tell an unbeliever God loves you. He said the apostles never shared the gospel this way. The Bible says God's wrath is upon unbelievers. Help them see their sin. Warn them of the judgment of God and give them the gospel. His post received more than 1,000 likes and dozens of replies. Several people agreed with him. One person wrote, saying God loves you is one of the absolute worst things we can say to an unsaved person. Another comment read, Amen, brother. We are a young church plant and had a family leave our church over this very truth being preached. Another reply said, The jailer asked Paul and Silas, What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Don't add or take away. Obviously, many others disagreed. But does God love everybody? And if he does, should we tell people who don't believe in Jesus that God loves them? One of the most famous passages in the Bible is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. In this verse, Jesus does not say that God only loves Christians. He does not say that God only loves people who believe in him. He says that God loves the whole world. God loves everyone in the world, whether they love him back or not, whether they believe in him or not. In Romans 5, 8, Paul says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here he is saying that God loves us, but also that God loved us before we loved him. God loved us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us before we came to faith, 
which was a demonstration of God's love for us. And 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. The only way we can love God is in response to him loving us first. The way a baby learns to love is by responding to his mother's love for him. The way a child learns to love is by responding to her father's love for her. We are only able to love each other because God loved us first and shows us how to do that. I don't think that telling people that they are under God's judgment is an effective strategy for persuading them to become Christians. It's true, but it's not effective. I don't think it works very often. If it's true that God loves everybody, which it is, then it's good to tell people that. Now, when we say that God loves everybody, that does not mean that God approves of all of our behaviors. We all do things we shouldn't. We all make mistakes. God calls every one of us to repent. Some people think if you love me, you can't tell me what I'm doing is wrong. But that's not the Christian way of thinking. The biblical way of thinking is God loves all of us. All of us are sinners. And we all need to repent and stop doing certain things in our lives. God loves everybody and he calls all of us to change. So yes, it's okay to tell everybody that God loves them, even if they don't believe in him. A second question that somebody asked about God was, why did God choose Judas to betray Jesus? Did he have a choice? And was he condemned to hell? First of all, we have no idea why Judas was the one to betray Jesus, and we never will. The Bible tells us that Jesus knew Judas would betray him before he did it. The question is, did he have a choice? This is the age-old question we have between predestination and free will. Presbyterians have long emphasized predestination. Methodists have long emphasized free will. But the Bible teaches both. How can they both be true? We don't know. In the old classic book, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan writes about Christian's journey through life. When he finally gets to the end of the book and Christian enters the celestial city, there is a sign above the gate to get into heaven. On the front of the sign, it says, all who will enter, enter here. After he walks through the gate, he turns around and sees that on the back side of the sign, it says, chosen from the foundation of the world. We have free will, and we have been predestined, both. 
When you read the story of Exodus in the Old Testament, when God is sending the plagues on Egypt to get Pharaoh to free the Jewish people, it says both that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and that Pharaoh hardened his own heart against God. Both were true. It's hard for our limited minds to understand how both of these can be true at the same time. But somehow, God's predestination does not overrule our free will. In other words, even though God knows what we're going to do before we do it, he never forces us to do anything against our will. We always have our free will. We always have a choice to do something or not. Nothing that ever happens surprises God because he knows it will happen before it does. So what this means is that Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus out of his own free will. It was his choice. It was his decision. Nobody forced him to do it. God did not force him to do it. God knew he was going to do it before it happened. Jesus knew Judas was going to do it before it happened. But God did not force him to. It was his own free choice. So does that mean that Judas was condemned to hell? Personally, I never like to say that anyone is condemned to hell. God is the only one who knows people's eternal destinations for sure. It's not always obvious to us what other people believe. It's possible that there are people who believe in Jesus that we are unaware of. And some who don't believe in Jesus may come to believe in him on their deathbed while they are unconscious and we just don't know. So I don't ever want to speak with certainty about something where I may not have all the facts. However, <clears throat> in Matthew 26, 23 and 24, Jesus says, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. It would have been better if he had not been born. That doesn't sound too good for Judas. After he betrayed Jesus, Judas committed suicide. Some have speculated if he had not killed himself, if he had waited until Jesus was resurrected, that Jesus probably would have forgiven him. We'll never know what would have happened. But what we do know is that God's decisions are always good and just and fair and loving and right. The decisions that are hard for us to make are not hard for God to make. God knows exactly what the right decision is, 
And when we find out what it is, we won't be able to argue with it. It will be so obvious that that was the right decision. A third question that somebody asked was, is God still in control? Why do we have viruses and wars? Why does God who made men and women with his own hands cause viruses and let men kill each other? All of the good in the world is because of God. All of the bad that is in the world is because of us. In the beginning, before we sinned against God, there were no viruses or wars or murders or any kind of pain or heartbreak. God does not cause viruses. God did not create disease or disability or death. These things are not God's fault. These things are our fault. All of the problems in the world are the fault of a fallen, sinful humanity. God did not create them. So then the question is, why does God allow them? Some people think that God is either good or he is all-powerful, but he cannot be both. So some people will say God is good, but he obviously can't stop all the evil in the world, so he must not be all-powerful. But if God is all-powerful, and he could stop all the evil in the world, but he chooses not to, then he's not good. So they think that God is either good, or he is all-powerful, but he can't be both. But the Bible teaches us that God is both. God is both good and all-powerful. How can that be? We had a choice to obey or disobey God in the very beginning, and we chose to disobey. But every good parent knows that you have to let your kids suffer the consequences of their decisions, or they will never learn. So when we choose to disobey God, he let us suffer the consequences of our sinful decisions. What's difficult is that we not only suffer the consequences of our bad decisions, sometimes we suffer the consequences of other people's bad decisions. Those things are not our fault. Last month, a gunman shot and killed innocent children and teachers in a school in Uvalde, Texas. It was a terrible, horrible sin. Families were forced to experience the pain nobody wants to have to go through. It wasn't their fault. Their children didn't do anything wrong. They suffered the consequences of somebody else's sin. We don't like this. We hate this. And we have a hard time understanding why these kinds of things happen in our world. But we also know that this is the same kind of thing that happened to Jesus. Jesus never sinned. Jesus was innocent. 
but he was murdered because of other people's sins. He suffered the consequences of other people's disobedience, other people's selfishness, other people's poor decisions. And when we see these horrible tragedies where innocent lives are taken, it reminds us that Jesus experienced the same thing when his life was taken. When these kinds of things first happen, we often get overwhelmed with the grief and the pain and the heartache. We experience shock that we never thought it could happen to us. We never thought it would happen to one of our loved ones. It can become all-consuming and very disorienting. We wonder if we will ever get through it. We wonder if the pain will ever go away and if we'll ever be able to move on with our lives. The Bible never minimizes our pain. The Bible never says you shouldn't grieve. It never says you shouldn't feel loss or pain or sorrow. It never says you shouldn't ask questions. But the Bible always says there is hope. The Bible always says that God can transform tragedy into something better. Pain and death and sorrow never have the final word. So 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter was a man who knew about suffering and trials, disappointment and defeat. He was being honest with people here about their grief and the multiple trials they had to endure. But he is holding out this hope for them for the future. He says, these trials you are going through are like going through a fire. It's hot. It burns. It's painful. But it's also burning off what shouldn't be there, what isn't valuable, what won't last anyway. In the same way that gold gets tested by fire, we are being tested by our world today. We don't like it. It upsets us. Some days we even hate it. But he is holding out this hope that God transforms our suffering. He turns it inside out and upside down so that instead of destroying us, it can make us stronger. In James 1, 2 through 4, James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Again, the Bible is very honest with us. You will face trials of many kinds. 
you will. Do not be surprised. But also, don't feel hopeless. Because when your faith is tested, it produces perseverance. Don't give up. You will get through this. You will. And in this difficult process, you will become mature and complete, not lacking anything. The Bible is both realistic and hopeful at the same time. We will suffer. But God will transform our suffering into strength. Satan wants to use our suffering to destroy us and turn us against God. And that does happen to some people. But God can transform our suffering to draw us closer to him and make us more like Christ. The Bible tells us that God is in control of our world, even when it doesn't look like it. Even when it looks like our world is imploding, when it looks like our culture is collapsing, when it looks like the earth is spinning out of control, God is still in charge. We want to be smart, but we don't need to worry. We want to plan and prepare, but we don't need to obsess and fret. God has everything under control. It's good for us to ask questions like these. I think God wants us to ask questions. We will never know everything, but we need to keep seeking. The Bible always gives us this balance of certainty and mystery. The Bible is God's revelation to us. God has revealed himself to us in the Bible. We can know him and we can know his truth. But the Bible is only a tiny sliver of the vast wisdom of God. We are still just scratching the surface of everything God knows. Every day we are alive on this planet, there are new things we can learn. And we will be able to spend all of eternity learning new things about this vast creation that God has made and marveling at how wonderful he is. But for now, while we struggle to understand things and while we are still looking for answers, the Bible tells us that we can have hope. Do not give up hope because God is in control. God bless. Stay safe. See you soon.